Hello and welcome to the Dutch Games Association podcast, in which top figures from the game scene in the Netherlands talk about their personal history, best practices and outlook on the industry. In this pilot episode, I interview Grendel Games founder Tim Laning. My name is Niels het Hoofd, by the way. I was a games journalist for years, and these days I find myself working for games companies a lot. This podcast is a great way for me to dig deeper into the industry. As you may have guessed from the name, the Dutch Games Association podcast is enabled by the Dutch Games Association. They offer a platform to everyone involved in the Dutch scene, and aim to bundle and share useful knowledge, which is where this podcast comes in. Please be aware that it's a pilot episode though, and that we're still trying to decide whether it's a good idea. We'd love to hear your feedback, so please get in touch and let us know. So, with the formalities out of the way, let's get to the interview. In early November, I traveled to the city of Leeuwarden, all the way up north in the province of Frisia, to speak with Tim Laning, one of the owners of Grendel Games and an active thinker and speaker about many game-related topics. I start our chat by asking Tim about his outlook on the Dutch games industry. How does he feel about it? I think uh, the Dutch game industry has uh, shown significant growth over the years. Uh, I've also seen it mature. A lot of fledgling studios have now slowly become much more professional, have uh, broadened their horizons and also expanded their reach, also from an economical point of view. I see that there's been a, a major growth in education pertaining to the video games industry. Not all positive, as some may know. I've written a, a, a small article about it uh, from my point of view. I think, in short, that there are too many students uh, allocated to the field. And I feel that the quality level of um, the studies that are being offered is too low. And I've seen that from my particular point of the industry, applied games or serious games, whatever we want to call it, uh, there's been a lack of implementation and actual sales and it's more research and development oriented. And we can slowly see some companies breaking away from that. And we can also see that those companies uh, are acquiring significant growth beyond the Dutch borders. So that's a lot to cover, I think. Maybe we can start uh, with uh, what you wrote about education. Uh, the Games Monitor came out recently. And I think the number of students that come out of the, the, the schools every year is something like 1,300. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what the, the monitor itself said. With about 5,000 people working in the industry. Uh, yeah, that's, that's correct. And, uh, so what do we make of that? There are a couple of different things in play. Uh, I think, first, uh, first of all, it's just too much students. Especially if you look at uh, the fact that uh, not a lot of these studies emphasize on entrepreneurial skills. So basically, when they're done with their study, they have to go look for a job. Uh, and that can also be abroad. And we've all seen that uh, the games industry has only been growing. We've seen a, a couple of changes being made to mobile and uh, mobile platforms that has expanded a lot. Uh, we can also see that uh, a lot of government uh, uh, agencies, organizations and hospitals have acquired people with knowledge of video games to see whether or not that fits in their educational plans. So I believe there's that's a, a particular growth market. But uh, I also think that students uh, are uh, themselves responsible for their own position. 
besides education. To, to, to sort of start with the very beginnings, why do you think there are so many game students right now? I think uh, a lot of there is a misconception amongst those students. A lot of them like playing video games and think that it would be very cool to create video games. And it is. Mm -hmm. But uh, there's a distinction between uh, playing and actually building them. It's a, a different uh, profession, if you, uh, if you can say that. Uh, and a lot of people are drawn to it because it is, it has a technological feel to it, but it's also very creative uh, and it's a booming market. So a lot of people uh, uh, believe that the world is rife with opportunities. And in a sense it is, but it's also more nuanced, right? Yes, it's uh, absolutely. It's, uh, it's much more nuanced. Uh, if you look at the, the universities, the, the curriculum that they're offering is re really very broad and uh, it, it's not really in-depth. And in the industry, as you can see the industry maturing, you see that there are a lot of people, especially when companies are growing, that don't want generalists. They mm. basically want professionals that are professionalized in a certain aspect of video game development. So for instance, now we get ge generic programmers, whereas you would like an AI programmer or a graphics programmer. And that distinction is often not made within uh, certain universities. And is this something that you can expect at all from uh, universities or from students? I mean, it sounds like specializing yourself in a field like that is something that you do later in your career, perhaps? That that may be very well be, but then still, as a programmer, you should uh, uh, be able to cover those subjects within a course. And uh, just broad strokes in pro programming is not enough. Same thing applies to, to art. Uh, if you would like to become an artist work, uh, working in the video game uh, field, then what can be expected of you is... Uh, uh, a lot of uh, knowledge in the field of uh, uh, art history, for instance. And a lot of these uh, uh, studies uh, are basically run by people who have no experience building video games, and they think that it's perfectly okay to have uh, a lecturer there that knows the basics of some of these fields, but cannot go in depth. And I think that's a larger problem within the Dutch society. A lot of universities really like the thought of a study just having to offer information instead of education. And there's a clear distinction between the two. For instance, if you would like to become a surgeon, you, you might learn of the subject through YouTube and uh, uh, tutorials. But as a patient, we wouldn't like a surgeon that acquired the knowledge through YouTube. Yeah. Certain things need to be learned. Yeah, with the sort of hands-on way of learning Absolutely. something. You, you taught yourself at the NHL, right? Yeah. Uh, here in Leeuwarden? Yeah. What kind of perspective did that give you on, on this discussion about education going on right now? Well, I was a very mediocre lecturer. Mm -hmm. uh, I was basically a poster child for the type of lecturers that we have now. Because you were not very experienced yet? And no, it was I, ha I had less experience. I did have experience in the field. I worked at uh, uh, several game companies before I uh, uh, worked as a lecturer. But in fact, I had no business becoming a lecturer. Uh, but at that point in time, there were basically no studies at all that did anything with uh, teaching video games. And it was just a course. So it was, uh, again, broad strokes. And uh, it was basically for generic uh, information about uh, game development and game design. Later on, I stepped back and strived to uh, hire professionals in every particular field. And that worked for a while. Uh, and when school uh, decided to cut funding for that, I decided to leave. 
it seems so, so much like a, a kind of chicken and egg problem. How do yep. you get the whole thing started? But that's something we've been saying for a couple of years now. Yep. So, so what's the solution? I don't know what the solution is. We've been thinking about setting up a commercial university only with people that work in the industry combined with educational experts. That might be a solution. I'm not sure whether or not we're going to do it. But if I look at how certain uh, educational institutes are formed across the world that have really high regards in the industry, it's all done by people from the industry. If you look at, for instance, a Gnomon workshop or you look at uh, Feng Zui's uh, uh, art classes in Singapore that you can follow online or um, uh, I animate, those are all commercial projects. But you get taught via the internet by people who work at Blizzard. You have to do your own assignments. Those assignments get uh, uh, checked on a day-by-day basis by professionals. They show you how it's done and they tell you what you're doing wrong. And you really have to try your hardest because otherwise you will flunk the course and have paid the money anyway. And the question, or at least one of the questions is, do the Dutch games companies have the time themselves to to meddle in education, basically? Probably because not. That's the next problem. <laughs> no, that, then, yeah, right? that's that's one of the, the the biggest problems. So you should work together with uh, uh, existing educational institutes, but you have to look at a, a, a form. I I read in your article about education uh, uh, something that you said about the schools, sort of pointing at the schools a little bit. You said, uh, many schools don't take the students seriously. Uh, They capitalize scrupulously on the dreams of young game makers. What's the role of of schools in this story? I can nuance that a little. I think a lot of schools, they are attracted to having high numbers of students. It's basically their target. So... They see that there are a lot of kids that want to get into games. So it makes sense opening up a course. What doesn't make sense is that you allot lecturers with not really a lot of uh, experience only for a small amount of time and work large groups of students that want to try to get into the game industry. If you you start an educational service, a professional educational service uh, like a university or a course, whatever, you are obliged to your students to make sure that the people that teach them are actually up to par. Basically what you're saying is there's nothing wrong with their motivation to do something with this urge of young people to do something with games. There's something wrong with the execution. There is, yes. And and then what's sort of uh, exciting about what you wrote in the article is using the world scrupulously yeah. It's like uh, I think very, it's intentional. Intentional way. I, of doing I think things. it's intentional. I had numerous talks with uh, uh, different universities where people plainly expressed uh, uh, guilt. They said, uh, "Yeah, we know, uh, and we're going to try to address it, but there are all sorts of reasons why we can't hire professional staff." One of the reasons is, as you put it, people from the industry barely have time to put in education, since the business is doing well. Or that's basically something that they prefer. That's why they got into the industry in the first place. Uh, The second reason uh, that's been mentioned a lot is that a lot of these game courses, they fit into the technology subsection of uh, the university. The faculty of technology usually has a lot of different studies that uh, that they offer. Some of them are not doing very well, but they did very well 20 years ago. 
Now, imagine that you have 10 to 15 people on staff on that particular faculty, and they are elderly, almost elderly. They take in a huge amount of money, but they have less students. That creates a black hole that needs to be filled. Basically, what happens a lot is that these smaller studies kind of press on the budget for the entire technology sector. Mm. So the surplus that's being created by an attractive study basically goes into the black hole. Do you see this happening in other studies as well, outside of the game field? Absolutely. Uh, this, this has happened before. This is not new. Uh, it happened with uh, communication and multimedia design. Before that, it happened to art and design, which was a different type of study that doesn't exist anymore. But basically, that was a combination of art and communication. Uh, social studies that wanted to band together with the art studies because that was financially an opportunity for universities. So it's been it, it's been happening before. It will keep on happening, but it, it does form a problem. It, it sounds like a more industry-driven approach would solve a lot of things, but then we we sort of move into this the, basically the scaling and the, the, the developers having time for for doing the education as well. Yep. And, and maybe that's a good segue into uh, the, the industry and its scale. As we saw in these games monitor numbers, there are a lot of students coming out of the universities. There are a lot of uh, new companies and the amount of companies yep. is growing. But the amount of people working in the industry is almost the same as it was three years ago. Yeah. So uh, do you have an insight in why we, as, a, as an industry, are finding it so hard to scale? I think there are multiple reasons. Uh, I think there are more people, actually, uh, that do get a job uh, uh, after they have finished their uh, game study, but they're not part of the game control monitor. I do think there are a lot of people that end up working for uh, regional government, local government, for schools, uh, for universities, um, uh, hospitals, and so on and so forth. So I believe the number of people is actually climbing, but it's simply not reflected in the monitor. Uh, and, and maybe just as uh, web designers or... Exactly, uh, because uh, usually... General programmers. Yeah, yeah. And they're all... Uh, the, the way we approach as a video games industry, the way we approach uh, a user interface design and so on uh, and so forth has a lot of meaning to other industries. And I do believe those people eventually find a job somewhere. But... Yeah. I think that if you look at the amount of students that are trying to find a job uh, within the industry, uh, they have a lot of tough challenges since the industry is uh, not as big as uh, other industries. Why is it so hard for, study, uh, for studios to grow in the Netherlands? I think there are two reasons. One of the reasons is that we don't love entertainment. The people do, but the country doesn't. Uh, so there are not a lot of people that will invest money into entertainment. I think... Uh, if you look at the film business uh, in, in the Netherlands, we see that a couple of films have made a huge splash. But those are usually Dutch comedies like uh, Costa and uh, so on and so forth. Uh, but you saw that Paul Verhoeven has had a, a great problem getting enough funding to create a, a movie uh, such as Black Book. And that's an accomplished director that had uh, his laurels uh, uh, but still, for him, I think he managed to get 10 to 15 million in the end after years of struggling. Well, we all know that in the games industry, 10 to 15 million for building a big game probably is not such a, a good idea. So that's hard. 
there's not a lot of love for entertainment. We, we, as a country, we tend to like serious stuff, which is also why I think that the serious games industry has been growing so much. It's definitely one of the reasons why our studio entered that particular industry. You connected this to our Calvinistic roots, basically, yeah, yeah. our upbringings, yeah, the yeah, general I, culture here. Yeah, I, I think that's the case. I think we, uh, as, a, as a culture, we tend to look at things that are serious, things that we can prove, things that have an academic approach, and th that's all fine and dandy, but the meat of the game is literally in the games. Serious games wouldn't be anything if there weren't entertainment games hanging around, and I still believe that serious games can only work if they're for 99% entertainment. Otherwise, you get the same thing as uh, we called edutainment uh, some time ago. Every child will recognize edutainment and run away in tears. Because uh, it's more edutainment. It's more edutainment. Uh, but I, I do believe that's one of the reasons why serious games have become a success in the Netherlands. And basically, uh, why we are further in developing serious or applied games than other parts of the world. So I, I would say that's a, a positive effect, but you talk... It's also a negative effect. You talk about it in terms of negativity as well. Yeah. Obviously, you feel that we should be making more entertainment games. We yeah. should be better at it. And we should embrace it. And with uh, good amounts of support, financial support and business support, those products can grow. And then it's, it's still a hit or miss market. Uh, of course. Uh, I, I concur. But that's basically every entertainment product... Uh, it's dependent on a whole lot of uh, uh, different uh, variables, uh, whether or not a project or product succeeds. But you know that it will fail if you don't pump any money into it. Yeah. Marketing is always a big, very big deal with the development of entertainment games. Uh, I've heard numbers uh, go uh, as far as saying that two-thirds of the budget should actually be allocated to uh, public relations and marketing. None of our studios do that. Well, not none of them, but uh, sounds crazy the majority. To me, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, because two thirds is, is a lot. It, it is, it is amazing. Yeah. But if you look at uh, uh, games like Call of Duty uh, that cost over 150 million to develop, and then you read that there's been 300 million put into uh, in, into the marketing to make sure that everybody buys it, it's still a consumer market. Consumers need to read about what's going to happen, and, uh, and uh, if you have uh, the luck of having. A community surrounding your your game or your company, then probably you will fare better through public affairs and uh, your network. And a lot of these costs can be negated. But uh, in general, I believe that uh, people need to know about your product before they will buy it. You mentioned Call of Duty. Uh, do you wonder sometimes whether the days of, of huge mega hits like that are, are past? Yeah. You know, with all the talk about the democratization of, of the games scene, of, of yeah. the, the tools, as well as the platforms. Where do you think that's heading? Well, I think the major publishers have pretty much... Uh, the, the dust has settled, so to speak. So we have uh, Ubisoft, we have Activision, who today just mentioned that they purchased uh, Candy Crush for... What was it? Nearly six billion dollars, yeah. absurd amounts. And there are not so many really big publishers around anymore. And what you do see is that a lot of other categories or genres that would have otherwise disappeared because these publishers disappeared with them, they've made a, a giant comeback through things like as, such as Kickstarter. 
uh, Elite Dangerous, for instance, I used to love playing uh, uh, games like that, like uh, science fiction uh, trading games, and, and they basically point, point vanished. Point-click uh, adventures, point another click, of uh, these examples. Uh, yeah, and you see them coming back because a lot of that audience that used to play those games now has the financial means to contribute to something. And I wonder what in the future our children, for instance, will remember. Will they remember Candy Crush? And will a Kickstarter in the in the in the in the future, twenty years from now, make a reboot of Candy Crush? A lot of different things can happen, but uh, it is dependent on your frame of reference. You and I were a certain age. I have the frame of reference to remember Elite mm. when it first came out. So that's nostalgia working for you. And that's the reason uh, uh, why Elite has made a comeback. But for some of these games, it's probably too late. They were arcade games that none of our children will ever remember and will have a very hard time uh, being resurrected, so to speak. Uh, you mentioned basically the, the consolidation of these these huge companies that, yeah. that have existed for a while. Basically, you say it's kind of impossible, I, I, I would guess, I'm just sort of filling in the blanks, to start a company like that today. You, um, you would have to have access to uh, gigantic amounts of money or to gigantic amounts of supporters. You c it can go either way. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I would, I would venture to say that um, for students who have just uh, finished their education, it's going to be really tough to start a company uh, working on a game concept that requires 150 people for four years to build. What should they be aiming for? What should we be aiming for as an industry? I think uh, there's definitely room for medium-sized companies. And I also believe that you don't have to have a big company to succeed. Uh, I think that's old school thinking. Uh, if you look at, for instance, at a company like WhatsApp, there's in the communication business granted, but uh, now they have 40 people on staff and the project is still going very strong, made hundreds of millions. Mm -hmm or they're worth hundreds of millions, perhaps even billions, uh, and they only have 40 people on staff. I believe in um, connected companies that can grow and mm -hmm. take on larger projects together, basically form like Voltron, yeah. uh, and uh, um, then do the work together, but still uh, survive as a, a unique entities on their own. Yeah. I believe in networked uh, capacity uh, a lot. And I think that as a company, you should aim for building the kind of projects that you are familiar with and slowly grow from there instead of uh, vying for creating the ultimate game that's uh, going to be a very big gamble. But what the, the characteristics that you describe uh, remind me of uh, Flambeer and also well, with the, the WhatsApp example, it reminds me of uh, Minecraft as a very small team. Uh, you you yep. couldn't even speak of a team at the beginning. Uh, that's now a huge factor in the in the industry. Yeah, right? but how how do you get there when the chance to to hit it big when when they're so small? How, how do you, you have even to support yourself? I, f I think the most important thing is to build a, a, a network for yourself together with other developers, but also publishers, people in the street, journalists uh, go to conventions a lot, take a, a part in. Uh, Basically, basically any effort that you can make and still that's no guarantee for success but it will cost you less money it will still cost you money but right. it, will, it will mostly cost you uh, a lot of energy and a lot of time it's going to be a time consuming business 
but you have to get your work out there. You have to make sure that people notice it, that people notice you. Yeah. And you have really have to look after your community, after people that play your game, and make sure that you keep in touch with them and do not dis disappoint them, especially not in the early stages. Then I guess you have a, a shot at that. You've been quite active yourself in the Dutch games industry. Uh, the, the next Dutch Games Association Day will be here uh, in Leeuwarden. Yeah. You've been very active here in the northern provinces uh, of the country to, to sort of work together with what you just said. It sounds like a, uh, that's a way to be more successful yourself, but there's, there might also be a more altruistic perspective in there. Oh, yes. How, how do you look um, at that? I, I think they're both, uh, they're both true. Uh, the first thing that we organized, there are a couple of things that we did here in the north. The first thing that we organized that we were really proud of was the Gameland uh, uh, Festival. On the that, Ameland yeah, uh, Island, that right? Takes place, place on the island of Ameland. And we did that because we thought there are a lot of students out there that don't have enough money to go to a GDC, to show their portfolio to anybody. And what could we do if we basically pile up all that money together and invite those people that you want to talk to, to an island, have a conference, have people building games on the spot, uh, and have them mentored by people that actually uh, know things that they can learn from. That was a very good festival, uh, also for ourselves, because it built our connections. We managed to hire those people, but we managed to hire them because other people chipped in money. So there was an altruistic motive, but at the same time, there definitely was also for ourselves a, a way to, to uh, reach people and to show people what we're doing. And we, we never we never hit that fact. We never do. I, I find that I keep coming back to the question of okay, so that's all nice, and all, uh, but why do we want Dutch games to grow? Why do we want this to become a thing? What's the what's the ultimate motivation behind that? Um, I guess that's a very personal question, but you can also yeah. see it as sort of a societal question. As a societal question, I would answer it by. From an altruistic belief uh, that I, I feel that video games really can change lives. And I think we video games on a whole really impact the way that we look at things, the way that we inter interact with things. And I think it can solve some problems in our society. Absolutely not all of them. Uh, as you know, we create serious games or applied games or however we're going to call them. But eight times out of ten, we basically uh, reject a client because we feel that there's no match uh, with building a video game for it. Some things are not, you, you simply cannot make attractive or you cannot make work through, through serious games. But some things you absolutely can. Uh, and I think that those things should be looked at, and that we should try to, to do that. So that's one of the reasons why I think that at least in serious games there should be uh, a growth uh, and that growth uh, should be uh, in the development field and in the research field. We should be able to prove things. We should be able to prove the claims that the, the games make. But at the same time, we also should try try things. Uh, and if you're not going to try things, then you'll never find out. Basically, that's that's my motivation right there. Why we should vie for games, a games scene, game development scene in the Netherlands. I think that. The Netherlands is an incredibly creative country. I believe that uh, we have uh, very good values, uh, also culturally. We're able to, uh, because we're such a small country, we've always been able to 
create products that uh, uh, work well also for other cultures. So I believe there's also an economical chance. Uh, but it won't be a chance if uh, there's no support for it. That's, it's going to be a tough job. And I, all, I always read stuff like there are millions that are being poured into the Dutch games industry. Well, if people can point it out to me, I'd love to hear it. Because you're not seeing it. No, there's certainly uh, there are uh, some subsidies uh, uh, that uh, uh, people can can use uh, sometimes for uh, hundreds of thousands of euros, sometimes even up to a million. But if you compare that with the money that's being invested in other branches, it's it's nothing. Yeah. It's, it, it doesn't even remotely compare to what other in, other industries are getting. So I don't think we embrace it enough to actually call it a subculture that uh, has any chance of growing unless uh, uh, people start uh, promoting it more. Same uh, thing as the film industry, by the way. Where where I would say that games have a sort of uh, um, uh, are ahead of film in a way because they're more uh, easily sort of exported. Yeah, no need to subtitle them. come to a dead end in my line of questioning, and when I pause to collect my thoughts, Tim proposes we go outside so he can smoke a cigarette and I can see the building he's in. The so-called Blockhuis Port has a long history that's well known in the region. It dates back to medieval times and certainly wasn't always a business complex. In fact, it was a prison, and infamous events took place there during the Second World War. In one part of the building that still has its original interior, Tim and his partners in crime even organized a yearly version of the Global Game Jam, where every team gets their own prison cell. Back inside, Tim shows me construction plans for an upcoming renovation of the Grendel office. It'll give the company a lot more practical space in the same physical area. A modern office surrounded by history. Jumping back into our interview, I asked Tim again about his outlook. This time not on the industry, as I asked when we began our conversation, but on his company Grendel. By way of his reply, he takes me on a trip down memory lane. We started in 1998, but we were formed as an official company uh, in 2003. And it took us about five years to realize how we would have to structure things and how we could actually start building uh, video games. Uh, we started out playing or building uh, entertainment games uh, and made the switch, I think, to uh, serious games uh, about 10 to 12 years ago. There was economic opportunity and uh, we saw that there um, that we could really make a change into how serious games were being built. Uh, we had a different design philosophy uh, where we would like to emphasize entertainment instead of back then the barn experiences uh, that uh, serious games were. And uh, we've definitely made a big stride since then. And uh, what the industry as a whole needs, uh, what we also need as a company, is basically try to get to the next level by making sure that serious games are implemented well uh, mm. and embedded are embedded within uh, our client's organization. And where we need to go is from a business-to-business -business approach to a business-to-consumer approach. Uh, and that's difficult. Uh, it's difficult for a number of reasons. Uh, we can get into that if you would like. Uh, but, but, but that's basically where we need to go and where our company's philosophy is being geared towards. 
first I'd, I'd sort of I'd like to talk about this switch from entertainment to applied yeah uh, because there was a point when where you were taking a lot of pride in besides doing the more applied things that you were also still yeah making uh, and we uh, still do games yeah uh, the last game I remember is uh, a Diamond Dash as yeah. a full-on yeah. entertainment game. Yeah. Uh, have there been more after that? Uh, prior to Diamond Dan, there was a game called Diatomic for Nintendo Wii. But Diamond Dan was basically the, the, the biggest thing that we uh, uh, made as an entertainment game. Still a game that we're very proud of. Mm -hmm. It has good ratings. Uh, there's still a lot of people that ask us for a sequel. It's still something that, that we're considering. But yeah, we basically changed into a, a serious game development company uh, because there was so much opportunity there and we actually started liking it. Mm -hmm. um, something unexpected happened. Yeah, something unexpected did happen. Uh, a, a lot of people that I know are cynic about it, cynical about it. They uh, basically say, well, either you sold out uh, or mm -hmm. uh, you uh, are not being um, focused on your roots. Uh, but yeah and true to your roots and true to our roots yes yeah. I would, that, that would be a better way of saying it but uh, uh, yeah there was just so much more economical opportunity in creating serious games and it was something that we actually were good at because we saw the difference that we could make by applying entertainment into this serious world and, uh, and and of course your approach is to not make not start with something boring no, and try to no. sort of make it fun but it's to start with something that looks a lot like a traditional game yeah and then apply it to whatever subject you are applying yeah, it to exactly uh, but but that doesn't mean that we will never create entertainment games again I think that Diamond Dan 2 is uh, absolutely a possibility, but there are also some other avenues that we're thinking about, but this time in a, in a, in a completely new direction. Our company has grown a lot, has professionalized. Uh, we've been around for more than 15 years. Uh, so the next product that we're going to make has a much better chance of making it. And the way that we started was very naive and uh, it was uh, it's, a, it's a miracle that we made it basically as a company yeah it's sort of the that's the, the this the sort of valley of death concept that you have to go through to yeah. become good at what you're doing and sort of know what you're the, the, the sort of the market and know where you're where you're where you're in yeah we uh, the first entertainment game that we tried to make uh, was also basically the start of our company as a real company we started out with a very big loan it was a lot of money and we were betting it all on one title it was a game called slave to the blade basically it was mortal kombat fused with uh, uh, with uh, guild wars so it was a one-on-one -on -one fighter in an arena but you would have slow but incredibly powerful uh, Vikings that would uh, uh, beat each other uh, to death uh, and hack and slash each other. And you would have uh, environments outside of the arenas that you could roam where you could trade your weapons and uh, break them up and reassemble new weapons, trade with other players, trade with the server. And it was envisioned as an Xbox Live title back when Xbox Live barely existed. This was still on the original Xbox, and uh, we had a very tight constraints to work with. Uh, we could uh, only have 40 megabytes. Uh, that's how big an Xbox Live title uh, could be back then. 
and we uh, invested a lot in technology to make sure that our game looked really good. And Microsoft really thought it was uh, uh, a wonderful approach and they definitely wanted to publish it, but then things changed and Microsoft uh, looked at the, the success of the Nintendo Wii and then they really wanted casual games and we were still creating this barbaric uh, slave Super to the blade game <laughs> so basically yeah, uh, xbox live upgraded and uh, uh, we kind of lost our opportunity right there and microsoft bailed out and we were left with a, a gigantic debt to the banks and so on and so forth and uh, and did you manage to pay it off somehow yeah immediately or um, not immediately but uh, um, yes we worked very hard and uh, by creating other games, Diamond Dan absolutely contributed to that. That was uh, right. like our plan well B. Yeah. Then we started uh, uh, creating uh, serious games because that came onto our path. So would, would you would you recommend any small startup to take a big loan at the bank? Uh, yes, definitely. Uh, I would say uh, you you should do it, okay. uh, but you should. It's a I think a, a wonderful adagium. Uh, fail fast and fail often, you have to make sure that you have a very good concept. But if you're a young entrepreneur, why shouldn't you? I mean, a lot of people in the Netherlands, and this is also one of the reasons why I think uh, our, uh, our industry uh, is not growing as much, is we tend to only look at failure. And we tend to be very much afraid of failure. But as a young entrepreneur, you have nothing to fear. If you go bankrupt, your company goes bankrupt. If you personally go bankrupt, yes, it, it'll be horrendous and it'll, it'll follow you for five years, but that's about the extent of it. If you fail in any other country, they basically hang you out to dry, but there's not a lot of risk that you're taking here. But there seems to be, a, you, you mentioned the word risk. Uh, there's yeah. a big risk aversion. Yeah. While basically what you're saying is do take the risk. And I, I think there's an effect where if you take the risk, more will be at stake and you'll run faster, work harder? Yeah, that's definitely true. That's also one of the problems that I have with um, subsidies being allocated to uh, game development uh, uh, trajectories with companies that apply for these subsidies. So, for instance, uh, an organization that really wants a serious game, they approach a developer, they go look for a subsidy together. But then you find out that in the perception of a lot of organizations, a euro, uh, a subsidy euro is different from a bank euro. They have less intrinsical motivation. I, I can really recommend the book by uh, Nicolas uh, uh, Nassim Taleb. Uh, Black Swan. Uh, the right. Black Swan uh, or uh, the follow-up Anti-Fragility, where he basically warns for any company to take on clients that don't have any skin in the game. And I think this is true. You are as successful as your client is. If your client is very much motivated and very much has skin in the game to create a, a good product, then you stand a much better chance of creating a very good game. Whereas if you find a client that is only half-hearted and half-witted when it comes to uh, creating uh, that particular product, uh, yeah, it stands less chance. You talked earlier about making the switch to 
basically selling applied games directly to consumers. Uh, not a lot of businesses uh, have succeeded at this. No. Uh, I mean, I'm thinking of uh, Nintendo right now. They did some yep. things with, they the, did. The, yeah. with the balance board uh, yeah. and, of course, the Wii Sports just in general. Those so were unintentional, by the way. Yeah. Uh, yes, I, I believe so. Uh, uh, Nintendo views their products as uh, toys. They don't see themselves as a video company at all. They see themselves as a toy manufacturer. And they will say, if you ask any official of Nintendo, but what about Nintendo Wii Fit? Is is that a fitness product? And they will say, no, it's not. It's a toy that is inspired by fitness. So there are a lot of rehabilitation institutes that adapted uh, Nintendo Wii Fit games, but they're actually not made for that particular purpose and the values within those games probably do not reflect what people need from physiotherapy so it's it's really not a very good example of a serious game being made by an entertainment company because it was entirely not their goal yeah so that makes the question even bigger so yeah, if you want to make that shift where do you even start it depends a lot on what kind of product you're making. If you look at health-related things, there are obviously different ca categories and different genres within serious games as much as they are in entertainment games. So we have healthcare-related games. We have games that are related to um, basically the uh, cultural heritage, education, and so on and so forth. And each has their own market, and each also has their own system for distribution. If you look, for instance towards education and you would say I would create a game that does mathematics training or calculus training you would probably have to work together with a publisher in that realm that knows how to reach those clients and also knows the restrictions of their hardware uh, and uh, their uh, software capabilities in healthcare where we are focused in uh, you have a lot of different problems Basically, healthcare, we can divide also in two separate markets, the institutional market, creating video games for health that help train uh, uh, medical professionals or uh, educate them. And you have products for patients, mm -hmm. uh, which could be therapy, which could be uh, any number of things. The first part, the institutionalized market is definitely something that you will have to reach through B2B. Uh, it's sort of an easier path because it's sort of kind of clear yeah. who trains these people and who would be yes. interested in a product like that. But the problem is that we are developers. And what we're talking about here is sales and marketing, which is completely different. So uh, there are a lot of arguments for setting up shop as a publisher in that realm to make sure that those products actually get there. If you look at our title, Underground, uh, uh, which trains basic laparoscopy skills, uh, we've spent six years on that. We've had which sounds, sounds like a very specialized field. To it me. is. Uh, so laparoscopy is basically keyhole surgery, for, for those that are listening that don't know. So uh, there's a difference between open surgery, which is more like eating with a knife and fork, the surgeon can actually see what he's doing because he's looking at your stomach, for instance. If he, if he would have to remove your gallbladder, he would make a large incision in your abdominal section and he would remove the gallbladder. And see what's going on. And see what's and going on because they have decent lighting. They can see everything that they're doing. Laparoscopy is basically entails blowing gas into the abdominal cavity, making sure you have more room and then insert through three small punctures, insert two tools and one scope that basically 
views the operation on a television screen. So it's much more like playing video games because the surgeon's actually looking at the television screen instead of in the, the human cavity, the abdominal cavity. But these skills are normally trained on simulators and those are incredibly boring. And especially for young surgeons, you would like them to test those skills more often, train those skills more often, which is basically movement um, because you work uh, through the abdominal section uh, and you insert the tools, you have an inverse movement, uh, if you will. You have uh, different lighting conditions and you want to train this. We created a, a training game for it called Underground that runs on a Nintendo Wii U, which has a dedicated controller. And the arguing behind it was there are a lot of residents, surgeons in training, that need to train these skills and they have to go to the skills lab where the simulators are in the evening when they're done with their study. And not a lot of people find that very attractive. They find simulators boring, they play, tend to play a lot of video games, so why not create a video game that they can play at home? The reality of it is that the game, it only costs 19 euros or 19 dollars, one nine, and the hardware costs as much as 250. Uh, and this is something that you cannot make cheaper. It's, it's as simple as that. Plus, in addition, you need a Nintendo Wii U. Um, as a controller, it sounds expensive, but as a sort of medical training tool, it sounds quite cheap. Right. Uh, in fact, it's extremely cheap. If you consider that a simulator, the, the cheapest one costs 30k, 30,000 euros, and the more expensive ones go well over 250,000. And what we've managed to create is a fun little game called Underground, which is actually uh, an entertainment video game. You can control it also with the regular Nintendo Wii U pad. Um, it has boss fights. It has an orchestral soundtrack. It has cutscenes, um, and it has different worlds and levels, enemies, what have you. There are no gallbladders involved, no medical context, because you don't actually need them to train these basic skills, which brings us back to training these industry professionals. So how would you sell this game? This game is also an entertainment game, as it is regularly available on the Nintendo Wii U eShop, and it becomes a training tool if you order our dedicated controller, which can be ordered from our website. So for regular players, it's just a regular video game. And for people who want to train their skills, they get the controller and they get a training device. But still, you need to reach this particular market. And as a development company, we've reached out to the community, to the surgeon community, the residence community, by going to a lot of different uh, conferences on educational skills and surgery, which sounds like the right right place to be right it isn't mm -hmm. uh, what we've learned basically is that all of them acquire these things through bigger companies bigger medical companies that uh, offer many solutions and many different uh, tools for surgeons in general mm. and then it trickles down from and then there. it trickles down from there and it's nigh impossible to as a small game development company start to contact every individual skills lab every individual hospital every resident training program to sell and market your product. That's extremely expensive. So you have to partner with these companies to have, in the end, a business-to-consumer model. Um, so that, that's, that's a very difficult thing to achieve, and you really have to um, make a, a, 
a, a dedicated study of how you are getting your product to the market and you have to work to re- together you have to collaborate with stakeholders and that particular community to get it done this is something that we learned over the last couple of years it sounds very easy and it sounds very straightforward it sounds like a no-brainer but you really have to do it to find it out so I mean, what's what's what what's the logical step from that? What, what's the, the logical step is that before you start to develop a, a game for a particular client, you also have to investigate how that particular market works, and it, that's something that you cannot do on your own. You're dependent on your client, and you're also dependent on people that have knowledge of that particular industry before you're able to sell it as a business-to-consumer product. Yeah. It's it's fairly easy to create it as a business to business product because the business will probably approach you ask you to develop a certain title and then you can develop it for them but this will turn you into a studio for hire which is basically what we all are this is what the serious game and applied games industry is we're all working for clients yeah. uh, which means that we're selling hours and, and um, you're implying that this is something that you want to get out of sure you, absolutely jump out of nobody ever some Nope. Smart plan. Yeah, nobody ever uh, uh, made a whole lot of money for, by just making hours. You have to sell the concept and you have to make sure that you can get royalties from what you're selling. This mm-hmm. is what the entertainment industry basically has been doing for all those years. So mm-hmm. you have to look at what kind of projects stand a chance to achieve that goal. And this is also what you as a company need to shift through. Uh, by uh, uh, looking at your client and the potential of your project. It's not just about getting billable hours. Billable hours are easily achieved, but they won't grow our industry. What makes our industry grow is basically getting that product out there and making sure that it's used to build communities around those products. So you can also do all, all the different studies that you need to do. This is basically all about something that's talked about a lot in the applied games industry. Yeah. Scalability. Yeah. Uh, but then when you talk about a game that's about this very specific surgeon skill, yeah. I have to wonder how scalable is that? And are there other fields? You, do you think it's scalable? Yeah, I think it's scalable. Yeah. Uh, in the, in, for instance, in the laparoscopy field, uh, there are a lot of different uh, uh, tools that you can, can train on. Uh, our game basically focuses on not not medical context. So this is uh, basically movement, eye-hand coordination, and so on and so forth. But you can imagine that there are a lot of companies out there that sell particular products that demand a, a different approach. Mm-hmm. For instance, there is a, a flexible mat that you can place in the abdominal wall. This is getting a little bit medical, but... Uh, and, fl- and graphical as well. Uh, yeah, sorry, but the, this flexible mat, uh, uh, they have it's a, it requires a different approach to laparoscopy, but it's still laparoscopy, and it's an incredibly big field. Mm. It's also used in gynecology a lot. Um, so you can imagine that there's room for expansion based on the same mechanics, and it's an incredibly large field. There are a, a whole lot of surgeons that still need to learn this particular technique, but the big companies are pushing it. Same thing when it comes to robot surgery. Robot surgery is very big. We're currently talking to a couple of very big companies that are into creating robots, as they call it. And robots is not really the right term because they're not autonomous. You need to train working with a robot, same as you need to train for uh, laparoscopy. 
and you have to make that enticing. Why do you have to make that enticing? Because you want people to study uh, uh, and train those skills to yeah. become better surgeons. And train a lot and keep training. Train a lot, train yes. Uh, but then you also mentioned selling directly to consumers, coming up with solutions uh, that are interesting for consumers. And I guess this ties in with the the stake of Grendel that was sold two years ago to an insurance company and a yep. healthcare company, I think. Uh, which, yeah, which it's is a, quite uh, unprecedented. Yeah, it is. Uh, we were basically the first uh, serious game company in the world that sold shares to a, a health insurance company. Uh, these are minority shares. I, I can't share with you. For what particular amount or you what particular? You can't share the shares. I can't share share the shares, but uh, it's well known that 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 it uh, are minority shares, and also to uh, the hospital, the UMCG hospital, and then not the hospital itself, but the investment company that is part of the hospital. And we did this uh, because what we saw was that we needed information about the market, about how we can reach different markets, and a health insurance company has a lot of data on what diseases need to be treated, where people are going to cut costs in terms of healthcare, where they need to come up with better examples where people can do things themselves uh, in a better way. So we found that that was very good to know uh, because health insurance companies also want to innovate uh, also in terms of apps and so on and so forth. There's a lot of incentive for them to automate a lot of the processes in the in the health insurance field. Yeah, that, that that's one of the reasons. Uh, and the, the hospital, uh, well, that that was very clear from the beginning. We try to have research coupled to all our game development. So basically, what we do is we work as the rest of the game development industry does. We do uh, our work in sprints, which means that we work two weeks on a particular project. And then we review the work and then for another two weeks we continue the work, uh, setting our priorities as our client sets them basically. And by doing it iteratively, what we try to do is basically confirm everything that we've developed over the last two weeks in the week that follows before we make a new sprint planning. So sort of have a reality check. Exactly. So and we, if you were, would be able to do that in a hospital with actual patients that will be using your... Yeah, prototype or, that will be or, or, a product sometime yeah, someday. Or professionals, industry yeah. professionals. Uh, what we saw, uh, so for instance, with the rehabilitation game that we made called Griffin Rider, we basically did that as well. We uh, applied testing methods together with children in the Rehab Institute. That was uh, one of our clients. Um, and we're currently doing with it with our obesity prevention game uh, based on Garfield, the cat. And we're trying to basically check on all the different philosophies and studies that our partners have uh, brought to us. Uh, an obesity game with Garfield sounds just about the, the least Dutch healthcare yeah. initiative I've ever heard of. Yeah, well, they are. That obesity is a, a literally a very large problem, a huge problem. And I wanted to address it for a long time and I've fought a long time about how you can reach children and their parents and uh, teach them something about obesity and try to prevent it. And I thought, in line with what we do with entertainment, uh, I thought you need a very strong character, an iconic character that is in no way belligerent, that basically can have a comical approach to it. And I immediately thought of Garfield because Garfield is a very lazy cat 
loves to eat lasagna, is overweight. Uh, and so I thought, well, if there's one way to pull it off, it's by using a, a, a character in a non-moralizing manner. And yeah. uh, that's when I reached out to Jim Davis and uh, I flew over. We had a long uh, couple of talks uh, uh, and we started piecing it together. And uh, we came up with a, a concept that works as a, a, a free-to-play game for children that's distributed by health insurance companies and that's backed by, the, for instance, the World Health Organization. And it's directly for the consumer. So yeah. it's a definitely business-to-consumer instead of business-to-business, business, even though there is an institutionalized version that has backing from the health insurance companies. That sounds uh, like it might just work. <laughs> we definitely hope so. And I would like to point out uh, for the record that that particular project is in no way subsidized. So I always hear people saying in the Dutch industry, you cannot find investors for your projects. It's, it's totally not true. This is a multi-million uh, euro project and it's done with investors and shareholders. But you really have to think about your business case and you have to build that business case and, and make sure and that your it's network a, and, and your network that. and make sure that it's a global proposition sort of looking ahead a little bit say five years or ten years from now where do you hope you will be and where do you hope that the dutch games industry will be i uh, i hope that we will remain a humble studio with uh, about 20 people on staff i hope uh, that um, we basically have managed to sell our games to consumers and to uh, institutes at the same level. I hope the industry will have grown and I hope that we have by then have provided proof of uh, the workings of, uh, of applied games in, in several different fields. I hope the Dutch industry uh, will remain a front runner in this uh, particular field and I definitely hope that Our government and our educational systems have embraced uh, entertainment games more and more. When we're done with our official conversation, we head to Tim's favorite pub, just a stone's throw away, to have a couple of beers on an early November terrace that's nearly too cold. We continue chatting, this time without the prying ear of a recorder. And one thing that I notice is that of every three people that walk by, Tim knows two and has business with one. He uses these passers-by moments to discuss urgent matters, the details of which remain a mystery to me. Leeuwarden is a small town, he remarks. And in small towns, apparently, this is how business is done. Yet, he also adds, and from here, I can do business around the world. That's it for Tim Laning of Grendel. And that's it for this first episode of the Dutch Games Association podcast. As mentioned in the introduction, it's a pilot episode and we're looking forward to your feedback. Do you want to listen to Dutch games people rant about their work and ideas? Are you into podcasts at all? What could we do better? What kind of guests would you like to hear? Please get in touch and let us know. If you like where this is going, get a free subscription on iTunes or any other podcast app and give us a rating while you're at it or share this episode on social media. Thanks in advance, and I hope to talk to you again soon.